Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues. This week, I am going to talk to Robin Brooks, who is the Managing Director and Chief Economist here at the IAF. We're going to go through some of what I think are the biggest economic or macroeconomic stories out there as we go into the IMF World Bank's annual meetings in Marrakesh, Morocco. Before I welcome Robin, just a quick point. The IIF will be hosting its annual membership meeting at the same time on the outskirts of the IMF World Bank meetings. We're going to be having lots of conversations about bank capital issues, which has become a very big issue in the world, digital finance and sustainable finance issues, debt relief, as well as multilateral development bank reform. I think these will be some of the key things that are going to be discussed in Marrakesh next week. The other key thing is the global economy. That's always discussed. And so I wanted to kind of talk to Robin and get his thoughts on some of the big stories out there and his viewpoints on what's actually going on. So we're going to start with the issue that kind of has been on everyone's attention screen for the last 18 months to two years, which is the reinvigoration of inflation, something we really just hadn't seen for 30 or 40 years. Now, inflation in the United States and elsewhere has started to come off. But um, I want to just ask Robin, is the inflation shock over or should we be worried that we're starting to see oil prices rise again and maybe the inflation uh, issues kind of are a little more long-lasting than maybe some believed? Robin, over to you. Clay, thanks for having me back. Uh, so if my count is correct, this is my third time on your podcast and my appearances on your podcast are a little bit like the inflation conundrum. We don't know if I'm here because of excess supply or excess demand. It's one or the other. So, Clay, you're totally right. There's a lot of discussion going into the annual meetings in Marrakesh. Um, inflation was the hot button issue over the last two years, I would say, with headline and core inflation in the United States, Eurozone, Japan many emerging markets reaching levels that we had never thought we would see again. Remember, before COVID, we were basically telling ourselves that the inflation demon had been permanently slayed. So what to make of it? We have, since the middle of last year, had a dovish inflation view. We have been firmly in camp transitory. We have not believed at all for a second that there are meaningful demand side issues at play. So let me just quickly enunciate why we think that and what we think at this point is still left to play out. So conceptually, we tend to think of monetary policy as having lags. I think everyone agrees with that. Fiscal policy, everyone agrees that there are lags. Think of the stimulus checks that were sent out that people still save. So some of those stimulus checks are still feeding into consumption today. However, no one really gives credence to the idea that the extreme supply chain disruptions after COVID also have lags. To give you an idea, in Japan in 2011, after this horrible Fukushima nuclear accident, Japan's manufacturing seized up and we had delivery delays of around seven standard deviations in Z-score space. The U.S. had a seven standard deviation Z-score on delivery times for over a year. 
So these are extreme delivery disruptions. It would be unreasonable to, to think that there are no lags in those. And so when we have modeled in our inflation forecast these lags, they ended up being super important and validated our dovish inflation view. If anything, we think these lags and other factors are even more important in Europe and Japan. And so we think we are going back to the status quo ex ante, which is a low inflation equilibrium. Our U.S. inflation forecast uh, for the end of this year for core PCE is 3.2%. I think the Fed now has a forecast of 3.7%. So we're quite a bit below the Fed. Consensus is around 3.5%. For next year, we're at 2.4%. So we're basically signaling back to business as usual inflation was transitory. Okay. And then does it get thrown off, as I mentioned, by oil prices, which obviously have crept up over the last couple of months? Or is that not as important as it seemed to be last year? Definitely important. I mean, look, I think obviously food and energy, we learned in this shock, are hugely important. They drive headline inflation. But we also learned that even with some pretty crazy fiscal stimulus that drove debt up 20, 25 percentage points of GDP, those supply shocks did not feed into, we think, lasting underlying inflation momentum. So from a policymaking perspective, if I put on Jay Powell's hat and look at the rise in oil prices now or rising other commodity prices, do I think that I need to worry about that source of inflation? No. I think we just learned under pretty crazy circumstances, supply shocks remain supply shocks and basically underlying inflation is well anchored. So that's a great compliment to the Fed. Uh, policy credibility is really high. It did a really good job in my opinion. And a lot of the criticisms are kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. All right. Well then actually, th maybe that's a good uh, segue for turning toward interest rates. And on this, I'd like maybe, Robin, to talk about two aspects. One is where you think central bank, the major central banks, so the Fed, the ECB, Bank of Japan, but any others you'd like to talk about, just kind of where their policy rates are right now and how you think they're doing. And then secondly, it's becoming a bigger and bigger story, and I know you're actually writing on it this week, which is the sharp rise we've seen in long-term yields on, on long-term bonds for in the United States, which has probably caught a few people off guard. So maybe a little bit on the rates as per the central banks themselves, but then also the longer end of the curve, which is not set by the Fed, but is set by a lot more market factors. How do you view those two things? Yeah. Um, so like I said, you should see what I'm about to say against the backdrop that we're dovish on inflation. In fact, our forecast basically on inflation is below consensus. Pretty clearly, it's below the forecast of the Fed. On GDP growth, we are in line with consensus in the Fed. We basically have 2% growth, so kind of steady trucking along. We have a forecast for the unemployment rate of 3.6%, which is basically roughly where we are. And we forecast that the FOMC will cut interest rates once next year, followed by 100 basis points and cuts in 2025 and 2026. So we have the Fed on hold for the majority of next year and then some pretty sizable cuts. I think you always have to draw a distinction between what you think should happen and what you think will happen. In this case, 
I would be in favor of cutting sooner and more. But I think the Fed having stood accused of being behind the curve will be very cautious to cut interest rates. And so that's why in our forecast for the Fed, we've backloaded cuts. So I think actually, if anything, that policy stance is too cautious. While I completely agree with the Fed on what it did and what it has done and continues to do, I think the ECB has put much too much weight on demand-side inflation as a driver of high inflation in the Eurozone. I think supply shocks there were much more pronounced than in the United States, just given the proximity to Ukraine and, and dependence on natural gas from Russia. And so I would much rather have not seen the ECB hike interest rates as much. I think financial conditions in the Eurozone are much too tight and will make it really difficult for Europe to recover as quickly as might be desirable. We think that will spill over into the Eurozone going into a much lower inflation equilibrium. For the ECB, we basically have it on hold through much of 2024 and then again, like the, uh, like the Fed cuts towards the end of next year. Japan is a huge outlier in all of this because Japan really doesn't set policy at the short end of the yield curve. The key target is the 10-year yield target. As you know, Clay, that was 0.25% in terms of a cap on the 10-year yield until December last year. In December last year, that cap was raised to 0.5%. And then in July of this year, it was raised from 05 to 1%. We have seen a very sharp rise in Japanese yields. And of course, this takes us now into your question on long yields, which have been shooting up massively. The sell-off in the long end of the bond market is perplexing, and it's a little bit puzzling because it's been very violent. But I think you want to see it through the following lens. The equilibrium that we were in before COVID was one where Fiscal policy basically was pretty conservative. Debt levels in some cases were too high, but they weren't rising. We have just been through a huge rise in debt globally, and we are in an equilibrium where deficits remain wide, even though COVID, for the most part, is in the rearview mirror. That means, Clay, as you and I were discussing yesterday, there is kind of a supply-demand imbalance, like uh, with my appearances on this podcast. And so um, it means that all else equal, it should be the case we have a lot of supply and less demand that our star, the equilibrium level of real interest rates is higher. And I think that's kind of what markets are waking up to. We have seen yield curve inversion, which was kind of the demon that dogged the Fed for a long time. That's getting priced out uh, very rapidly across the US yield curve. And I think that's basically what markets are doing. If the Fed's policy rate is around 5.3, 5.4%, that's basically where I think you could expect on a reasonable expectation the long end of the yield curve to go, factoring in a little bit of a risk premium that there's always a recession risk. So say 5% on the 10-year yield long term, that's not totally unreasonable. Okay. Thank you very much. So Obviously, next week is the IMF World Bank meetings, and they try to take, obviously, the most global look they possibly can on economics, and we try to do that at IIF as well. Let's do a little bit of kind of where do you see the vulnerabilities out there, whether it's a specific emerging market or it is a broader issue that could affect emerging markets. 
And then while you're kind of working through your answer, it would be remiss if I didn't ask you about kind of some of your thoughts on China, given what we've seen this year in China. So maybe that's a lot to cover, but I know you can do it, Robin. Yeah, it's interesting. The market's narrative has almost flipped on its head. It is something that we covered in our global macro call, which we just held this morning on China. You know, if you think back, Clay, uh, when we started the year, markets were quite bullish on China. Uh, People thought, okay, the end of zero COVID will mean there's a big catch-up boom that's going to happen in China. And China will outperform. And at the time, we had some pretty sizable inflows uh, by foreign investors to China. Meanwhile, the banking issues in the United States and then the SVB blow up in March meant that U.S. recession risk was very much on everyone's mind. So we basically had a situation where China was expected to outperform and the U.S. was expected to be weak. It's the flip of that now. Markets are extremely bearish on China. They are upgrading their assessment for the United States. As I said, what's going on in the the long end of the yield curve is very much about markets pricing out yield curve inversion. So that's basically an unwind of the recession trade. Now, the number one vulnerability for the global economy, I think, is China. And I think that has two facets. The first is that there is a huge amount of uncertainty about how to weight structural weaknesses in the property sector against perhaps a cyclical picture on manufacturing and exports that's improving. Given the opacity of the property sector in China, no one has much confidence that there couldn't be an escalation of debt issues, which could, in the short term, drag the economy weaker. We just don't know. And I think this is a major source of uncertainty for the global economy. And it's certainly something that Gene Ma, our head of China research, is digging into very actively, and we'll have a series of pieces on precisely that. The second China-related source of uncertainty is obviously geopolitics. We are constantly in a situation where there is a risk of escalation. And I'm not just talking about Taiwan. I'm talking about trade relations, technology, investment regimes. Clay, you're the expert on all this. So I'll leave it at that. But I would say that obviously the structural slash cyclical slash security situation is combining to something where China is the number one risk. And uh, circling back, any other key vulnerabilities? Because I thought there was very good points on China, just any other key vulnerabilities out there? Yeah, for sure. We have debt levels that are very high. The BIS um, has done phenomenal work on what's called the basis trade in the U.S. Treasury market. We had a blow up in the U.S. Treasury market of unprecedented proportions in March 2020 when COVID first hit. The basis trade is really just a fancy name for a carry trade where hedge funds primarily are taking a short position in one security and a long position in another to arbitrage yield differences. Because those yield differences are small, these trades get leveraged up massively. And if you then have an unexpected move, you lose tons and tons of money because you have massive leverage. There are signs, again, which the BIS has been flagging very loudly, that this basis trade is again building up in the U.S. Treasury market. This is a major vulnerability for the United States. It is exacerbated by the fact that when things get complicated, we bail out 
uh, risk takers. And I don't think we've arrived at a good solution to this problem. You will remember, Clay, in March 2020, that month and in April, the Fed did $1.2 trillion in Treasury buying to get the Treasury market back under control. This is basically bailing out investors who had highly leveraged positions. And so should we be surprised that the basis trade is building up again? I think it's only rational for investors to do that. So we have an imbalance there. European debt markets are similar. We have debt levels in some countries which are chronically high. In good times, nothing is ever done to bring those debt levels down. In bad times, people then complain, and it's called fragmentation when interest rates rise, and the ECB is forced to intervene. So the playbook on both sides of the Atlantic is pretty similar, and high debt levels are a major vulnerability. Emerging markets, I am really proud of EM, how it's done over the last three, four years. They have been chaotic. They have been highly disruptive. And for the most part, emerging markets have come through. They have weathered these shocks with minimal intervention, their exchange rates have fallen, there have not been the debt blowups that people have worried about. And so I think the systemic level of health is actually good, and I think people underappreciate that. There are huge idiosyncratic pockets of vulnerability. Argentina into the elections later this year, I think, is a major vulnerability. There are major financing issues there probability of devaluation, even ahead of the election, given how tight money is, I think is very material. Turkey is a risk factor. And there are one or two other frontier markets. Egypt is one that comes to mind, where again, there's risk of disruption. What all of these hotspots have in common is that they are basically exchange rate mismanagement. Argentina again and again tries to peg to the dollar. Turkey is currently pegging the lira to the dollar. Egypt again and again devalues, but then repegs. These pegs are unsustainable in an environment where the dollar is super strong, which is where we have been over the last 10 years. And I would expect where we will stay for the coming 10 years. Well, thank you very much, Robin. Thanks for your input. Good luck to you, obviously, next week as well at the annual meetings. It was great to have you on the podcast today. And Third time. Woohoo! And I was just thinking about it. Maybe when you get to five, we'll do the five times. Maybe we can get you a watch. Uh, oh, hold it. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, we have no money. Oh, so at least what we could do is get you maybe a pen or uh, you're given your profession, we'll get you a number two pencil. How about that? Yeah, maybe I could just have a picture of a Rolex. Okay, that's actually, that's very, very good. All right, well, look, uh, Robin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always and look forward to next week. Before I continue with this podcast, I wanted to say a quick word about the Institute of International Finance's annual membership meetings. From October 12th until October 14th, the IAF will be hosting its annual membership meeting in Marrakesh, Morocco, alongside the fall meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. In this three-day program, it'll be an opportunity for attendees to hear from CEOs, chairs of major financial institutions, central bank governors, and other influential global and regional policymakers. We get to make business connections with peers and clients from across the globe, and we discuss very relevant topics such as the road to net zero, shifting risk landscape for the global financial sector, data, artificial intelligence, digital transformations, central bank digital currencies, and oh my gosh, so much more. Our event will take place at the Move and Pick Hotel in Marrakesh. 
but online attendees are welcome to access the live stream of the event and network with attendees through an IIF meeting app. And furthermore, we're looking forward to the event in Marrakesh, but we would like to emphasize this is an incredibly challenging time for the people of Morocco. In addition to keeping those affected by the recent earthquakes in your thoughts and prayers, the IIF encourages donations to reputable organizations providing disaster relief to those affected by the recent earthquakes, including the World Central Kitchen, which is the official charity of the 2023 annual meeting. For more information and instruction on how to register, head over to IIF.com events or reach out to meetings at IIF.com. Now, back to the podcast. So now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from the conversation with Robin, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. Here are the three main takeaways. The first is that, at least in Robin's mind, we're heading towards a more benign inflation path so we can reach what he called a low inflation equilibrium, largely based on the fact that there are disruptions in supply chains. There's a lag with that that have started to free up and will cause less of a problem on the supply side. Second is that the Fed's policy has really started to reestablish their credibility as they have handled the last 18 months fairly well and had seen as a strong central bank. And third is that China is the number one vulnerability in the global economy for a couple of reasons. One is how to think about or how to weigh the cyclical versus structural factors. And second is the problems that we've discussed many times in the past, which is geopolitics. The two things I'm looking forward to are first, not surprisingly, the conversations and the discussions that come out of next week's meeting at the IMF and World Bank on how they're looking at the global economy. And second, and related, is the IIF's annual membership meeting, where we will have central bankers from many of the countries that Robin talked about, as well as finance ministry officials and some of the leading bankers, asset managers, and insurance providers in the world. Now, let me turn to my one sports fact. A few weeks ago, I talked about the beginning of the Rugby World Cup, which is still going on. But now another World Cup has just begun and will run through most of the rest of November. And that's the Cricket World Cup. And so if you think about it, right after soccer, cricket is the second most popular sport in the world. There have been 12 World Cups. And this year, there will be 10 teams. They're going to be playing in India. Australia has won it five times. India, the host country, has won it twice. And the defending champion is England. And while the tournament being held in India is clearly going to create some exciting matches with many teams vying for the top spot, and it's unclear as to who will win, of course, I think that there was a really interesting and fascinating story that Al Jazeera reported on earlier this week, which was on the jubilant attitude of Sri Lanka's fans during the final of the Asia Cup, which is in lead up to the World Cup. They lost badly to India in the finals. But the Sri Lanka fans supposedly were having the greatest time. And when asking a spectator, why were the Sri Lanka fans so happy, even though they were losing and losing badly, their point was actually related to a lot of the work we do here at the IAF. They said, look, the game provided relief for a country that is coming out of its worst economic crisis. 
It's giving people a reason to celebrate, even if we're losing. Anyway, it's just another example of how sports can bring people together and give people hope and joy, even in bad times. So that's going to wrap it up this week of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listeners. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. 